From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line with today's host, Father Wade Menezes. In North America, call toll-free 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. You can also text the letters EWTN to 55000 or send an email to openline at EWTN.com. A tremendous Tuesday to each and every one of you. Thanks so much for tuning in to EWTN's Open Line. Father Wade is in the bullpen getting loose, ready for today's program. If you'd like to be part of the show, the number is 833-288-EWTN. That's 833 288 Three nine eight six. If you're outside the United States and Canada, that number is one two zero five two seven one two nine eight five. And we'll even put you straight to the front of the line at one two zero five two seven one two nine eight five. You can always send us an email, open line at EWTN.com. Or you can text your question to Father Wade. Text the letters EWTN to 55000. Wait for a response. Text your first name and your question. Message and data rates may apply. I'm Jack Williams. Michael McCall producing the program. Your call screener is Matt Kubensky and Jeff Burson handling our social media efforts. So if you're watching us on YouTube or Facebook Live, you can type a question into the chat window and it may find its way to us by the end of the program. And our host is he is every Tuesday, Father Wade Menezes. Happy Holy Week to you. Yes, Jack, and the same to you and all the good staff there at uh, Open Line Tuesday today. Uh, really appreciate that. And the Fathers of Mercy are gearing up for the Sacred Triduum. And you're getting ready today in our first segment to do your Sir Edmund Hillary impersonation. Yeah, there you go. You're going to take us to the source and summit of the Christian life. That's right. You know, we're just about to finish up this Lenten period uh, during this fifth week of Lent, leading us into Holy Thursday night. Lent, of course, is a 40-day period of penance before Easter, which focuses in a very special way on the three eminent good works of prayer, fasting, and almsgiving. Lent then leads us into the sacred triduum, of course, uh, the holiest three days of the Church's entire liturgical year, considered a season in itself, a liturgical season, wherein the Christian people recall the suffering, death, and resurrection of Jesus. From Holy Thursday evening, the Mass of the Lord's Supper is when it begins through the celebration of the Easter Vigil and into Easter Sunday itself. And of course, Easter as a season is a 50-day period of joyful celebration of the Lord's resurrection from the dead and his sending forth of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, which closes the 50-day Easter season. Now, it's because of these three periods, Lent, the Sacred Triduum, and the Easter season, soon to be upon us, that I want to talk today as our springboard, Jack, as you intimated so greatly, of uh, the effects of the Eucharist as the source and summit of the entire Christian life. You know, Catechism of the Catholic Church, number 1323, says, quote, talk about the evening Mass of the Lord's Supper, huh, on Thursday, Holy Thursday night. On number 1323, at the Last Supper, on the night he was betrayed, our Savior instituted the Eucharistic sacrifice of his body and blood. 
This he did in order to perpetuate the one sacrifice of the cross throughout the ages until he should come again. And so to entrust to his beloved spouse, the church, which we know by her four marks, one holy Catholic and apostolic, which we know by her four marks, a memorial of his death and resurrection, a sacrament of love, a sign of unity, a bond of charity, a paschal banquet in which Christ is consumed, the mind is filled with grace, and a pledge of future glory is given to us. That's the quote, Second Vatican Council's document, Sacro Sanctum Concilium, on the Sacred Liturgy, paragraph number 47. And then in 1324, and this is what you alluded to, Jack, just now, the Eucharist is the source and summit of the Christian life, quoting Vatican II's Lumen Gentium, the Light of Nations document, paragraph 11. The other sacraments, and indeed all ecclesiastical ministries and works of the Apostolate, Lumen Gentium tells us, are bound up with the Eucharist and are oriented toward it. For in the Blessed Eucharist is contained the whole spiritual good of the Church, namely Christ himself, our past, huh? 1325 of the Catechism, the Eucharist is the efficacious sign and sublime cause of that communion in the divine life and that unity of the people of God by which Holy Mother Church is kept in her being. It is the culmination both of God's action, his sanctifying the world in Christ, and of the worship men offer to Christ and through him to the Father in the Holy Spirit. Amen to that. And number 1326, finally, by the Eucharistic celebration, we already unite ourselves with the heavenly liturgy and anticipate eternal life when God will be all in all, making reference there to 1 Corinthians 15, 28. And number 1327, in brief, then the Eucharist is the sum and the summary, again, the source and summit, we could say, of our faith. Our way of thinking is attuned to the Eucharist, and the Eucharist in turn confirms our way of thinking. That's from St. Irenaeus, the great early church father, in his wonderful document, Against Heresies. Again, our way of thinking is attuned to the Eucharist, and the Eucharist in turn confirms our way of thinking. And so I want to close this springboard, Jack, with uh, the effects of the Eucharist found in the Universal Catechism of the Catholic Church, number 1391 through 1405. Again, 1391 through 1405. Number one, the Eucharist unites one intimately with Christ, huh? where the other six sacraments effect the grace they signify. The Eucharist not only effects the grace it signifies, the Eucharist is what it signifies. It is the body, blood, soul, and divinity of our Lord Jesus Christ. So it thus unites one intimately with Christ. Number two, the Eucharist unites one with the heavenly liturgy. This is seen beautifully in the book of Revelation, the book of the Apocalypse. Number three, through the Eucharist we participate in Christ's one sacrifice on the cross. Number four, the Eucharist cleanses and separates us from venial sins. Number five, it preserves us from future mortal sins. Number six, it is true spiritual food as we receive the very author of grace himself. Number seven, the Eucharist communicates the mystery of the communion of the Most Holy Trinity to us. Number eight, the Eucharist establishes the community of believers in union with the truth regarding this doctrine. Number nine, the Eucharist provides a foretaste of the future life in heaven where we will be with Christ and the Father and the Holy Spirit. Number 10, the Eucharist provides growth in the Christian life. And number 11, it provides an increase of the grace received in baptism. Number 12, it is a source of conversion and penance for the individual when they receive it worthily. Number 13, it helps transform the person through Christ. 
Number 14, it commits us to the poor. And number 15, it unites Christians in the fullness of the doctrine for those who believe, thus helping to unify all Christians under the chair of St. Peter. So here we have the, the effects or the fruits of the sacrament of the Most Holy Eucharist. Again, Universal Catechism of the Catholic Church, number 1391 through 1405. And those earlier paragraphs, Jack, that I shared were numbers 1323 through number 1327. And let's not forget, I, I want to wrap it up with this, uh, the Eucharist is one of the three sacraments of initiation. What does that mean? Well, you're fully initiated, quote-unquote, into the Catholic Church, along with baptism and confirmation. So baptism, confirmation, and Eucharist are the three sacraments of initiation of the seven. Then there's two more sacraments of union, which are at the service of communion of the entire populaces of the world. That, of course, is matrimony and holy orders. And the two sacraments of healing. Uh, we talk about the body-soul compositeness of the human person, huh? Well, we have confession and the sacrament of the anointing of the sick. So three sacraments of initiation, of which the Eucharist is one, two sacraments of union, and two sacraments of healing. And let us not forget, then, that the Eucharist indeed completes Christian initiation, number 1322 of the Catechism. Those who have been raised to the dignity of the royal priesthood by the sacrament of baptism and configured more deeply to Christ by the sacrament of confirmation participate with the whole community of believers in the Lord's own sacrifice by means of the sacrament of the Eucharist, something that the effects of the Eucharist that I just shared, these 15 effects of the Eucharist, again in number 1391 through number 1405, the Catechism, makes very, very clear. This is why we can say as priests at the altar during the offertory, pray, brethren, that my sacrifice and yours may be acceptable to God, the Almighty Father. How can the priest say that to a group of laity gathered in the pews? Pray, brethren, that my sacrifice and yours, in other words, and yours, laity, it's because of the baptismal priesthood, which the Eucharist helps in part make possible through the sacrament of baptism itself, the laity, through their baptismal priesthood, can make a sacrifice at Mass, their particular willed intention or intentions at that particular Mass, because only a priest can offer sacrifice. And the baptismal priesthood of the, of the laity, united with the ministerial priesthood of the priest celebrant as the celebrant of that Mass, this is why the priest celebrant is able to say those beautiful words at the offertory of the bread and wine. I say bread and wine because it's before the consecration. Pray, brethren, that my sacrifice and yours may be acceptable to God, the Almighty Father. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. It's EWTN's Open Line Tuesday with Father Wade Menezes. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. If you have a question, call 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. Or send us an email to openline at EWTN.com. You know, I've got a great idea for uh, giving someone a beautiful Easter gift. 
uh, perhaps maybe a, a someone who you're a godfather to or a confirmation sponsor, or maybe even a little Easter gift to yourself to continue uh, even beyond the season of Lent to being the best disciple that you can be. It's called Living Calm, Mastering Anger and Frustration by Dr. Ray Garendi. It's new from EWTN Publishing, and you can remove reserve your copy today, and it will be released on May 24th. Uh, Dr. Ray uh, cuts to the heart of the matter to determine whether your anger response is justified and what to do when it isn't, and he explains the many types of anger and the types of people who suffer most from anger and teach readers why feelings aren't neutral and whether anger is a product of your nature or your nurture. You'll also learn the difference between righteous and unrighteous anger and why those closest to us can anger us the most. It's available now at EWTN's Religious Catalog. That's EWTNRC.com. And they're offering free standard shipping on online orders of $75 or more. That's standard shipping in the continental U.S. only. Use the code FREE at checkout. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. 833-288-3986. Straight ahead, we'll talk to John and Marie. But first, uh, Anna Marie is watching us on YouTube, and she wants to know who were the saints that rose from the tombs at the crucifixion, and why was Mary Magdalene able to recognize Jesus after the resurrection, but the apostles didn't until Jesus broke bread? Well, great question. Well, the tombs rising at the time of the resurrection were those who um, had already passed and rose from the dead in that, in that time of Christ's own resurrection to prove the great gift of the resurrection of the human body even being possible. Huh? And uh, we see this even before Christ's resurrection, uh, before his death even, with the life of Lazarus. Huh? And so uh, it, it's, it is fitting that we see it not only before Christ's own passion, death, and resurrection in Lazarus, but it is fitting that we see it after his resurrection. It's like a, it's like a, dual, um, a dual seal of approval regarding Christ's resurrection per se as the Savior of the world, the God-man Savior of the world. Huh? Uh, if it had only happened, uh, the rising of the dead of others, prior only to his own passion, death, and resurrection, that is Christ, then arguments could be made that resurrections were possible by Christ only before Christ himself died. But by having the others rise uh, after Christ himself had arisen, it proves that his resurrection also assists those uh, living and dying after his own uh, living and dying. So it's like a, a dual stamp of approval. And in regards to Mary Magdalene uh, being uh, the one to recognize Jesus, um, you know, remember, not everything that's in that's not in Scripture in, means that it didn't happen. Uh, the in, in in the in the the reasoning of brevity to encapsulate maybe a longer narrative, down to its most important and pertinent parts. The sacred authors tell us what is most fitting and what is most necessary for that narrative per se. So uh, it could be a special grace, precisely because uh, her office of being the one to go run and tell the other uh, or tell the apostles that she had recognized him and that he was uh, alive, and and she, by the way, who had uh, seven demons cast out of her, showing that those with past uh, sinful lives can still have very, very prominent offices uh, to fulfill in God's plan, in the Blessed Trinity's plan. 
made possible through their own salvation and redemption in the God-man Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, who became incarnate for us. And we see this in the life of Mary Magdalene. So it could have been a special grace that was afforded her precisely to carry out the office to, to uh, go inform the others that indeed she had seen Christ risen from the dead. Something that the others saw in the upper room, namely uh, Thomas, who himself doubted upon the first post-resurrection appearance in the upper room. So great, great series of questions as we draw closer to the sacred triduum and the great celebration of Easter. To the phones we go. First up today is John. He is a first-time caller driving through the Commonwealth of Virginia, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. John, you're on with Father Wade. Hi, how you doing, Father Wade? My, my question has to do with private revelations, and I know they're, they're as old as the Church itself, but when the Church is, has given a negative judgment on a private revelation, in other words, saying, this did not happen, this is condemned, you cannot promote this, and you show someone, you know, date and time and place, you show them the actual, you know, decree of the Church, and they still promote it, is, is that heresy? Is that, what, what, what is that? Well, that's a great question. Heresy, per se, is a, a partial repudiation of those things that Holy Mother Church, through the sacred deposit of faith, uh, sacred Scripture tradition in the Magisterium, reveals to her faithful as worthy of belief and needed to put oneself on the road to salvation through the grace of God, made possible through Jesus Christ. Things that are formally defined, okay, um, either by the extraordinary magisterium or the ordinary magisterium. You're talking about private revelations which aren't even needed to be believed in per se, even if they are approved by the Church. So technically speaking, the person would not be a heretic. Again, heresy or is found in one who partially repudiates a doctrine of the faith through that, that's revealed as such through Scripture, tradition, and the magisterium in the sacred deposit of faith. You're talking about a private revelation which, even if it's approved by the Church, is not even needed for salvation. A, a good Catholic can choose not to follow a private revelation that has been approved by the Church. I would not say that your friend is a heretic, per se, because it doesn't fall under the category of heresy, partial repudiation of revealed truth, where, where total repudiation of, of all revealed truth would be apostasy, by the way. That's the difference between apostasy and heresy, the, the apostate and the heretic. The apostate repudiates all that has been revealed. The heretic repudiates partially what's been revealed. Because this involves uh, private revelation, which again doesn't even have to be believed in by the individual who's a good-standing Catholic, even if the Church does approve that particular apparition, you still don't have to believe in it, I would say that at most your friend is being very disobedient, a very disobedient son or daughter of the faith, precisely because they continue to, re to promote a private revelation that has clearly been uh, deemed not worthy of belief and not worthy of supernatural origin by the authority of the Church, and he's being disobedient. Uh, he's putting himself, or she's putting uh, herself, supra-ecclesia, above the Church. We don't want to be supra-ecclesia, above the Church, nor do we want to be um, sub ecclesia, you know, in a self loathing kind of attitude uh, under the church. Uh, we want to be cum ecclesia. 
with the church. Uh, that's where we want to be. That's where grace is found, huh? Always in union with with Christ and His bride, the Church. As as Saint Irenaeus says again in his um, his great treatise against the heresies, where Christ is, there is the Church, and where the Church is, there is Christ. So if the Church has repudiated this private revelation, deemed it not worthy of belief and not worthy of supernatural origin. Um, your friend to be cum ecclesia and not super ecclesia needs to follow what the church through her expertise uh, has deemed it such. Great question. Thank you so much. 833-288-EWTN. That's our toll-free number. A couple of open phone lines for you and plenty of time for your calls at 833-288-3986. Next up is Marie, another first-time caller in the great state of Pennsylvania, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Marie, you're on with Father Wade. Hi, Father. I have a question on Simon A. I sort of was listening on... Um YouTube, and as one priest says, if you don't give to the support of the church, that's simony, and it's a grave sin. And also, like, if you buy religious articles from EWTM catalog, is that considered buying and selling religious articles, or if you have, like, a necklace with some uh, holy, uh, like, Blessed Mother or something, and you try to sell it, is that simony? I'm confused. If I'd okay. appreciate if you can explain what it is. Sure, you bet. The, the Church's traditional uh, uh, definition of, of, of simony in the, in the English pronunciation, it's, it's a sacrilege that consists, Marie, in, in buying and selling what is spiritual in return for what is temporal. Keep that in mind, okay? Uh, buying and selling what is spiritual in return for what is temporal. So in simony, or the practice of simony, the person tries to equate material things such as money with spiritual things such as divine grace and treats the latter as though he or, or some other human being had full ownership of what really belongs to God. One of the legitimate gripes or concerns that Martin Luther had against the church of his time in the 16th century is that some priests against the Church's teaching, I might add, some priests were selling indulgences, and that was a grave, grave error, okay? And, and, and that's one legitimate gripe that Luther had. He went wrong in that he said that the Church was doing it uh, in toto, in, in its totality, where no, it was just dissident theologians or priests or clerics that were doing it. Uh, the term simony originated with the biblical account of, of Simon Magus, who sought to purchase from St. Peter the spiritual power derived from the imposition of hands and the invocation of the Holy Spirit. That's in Acts 8.18. So simony includes both agreements that are illicit by divine law and those which the law of the Church forbids uh, as greater protection and reverence for spiritual goods that the Church is called to care for and, and have a, 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 a general maternal concern over them. Thus, to promise prayers only exchange for a certain sum of money is simony forbidden by divine uh, natural law. Uh, to, to confer sacred orders or obtain some position of authority in the Church in return, let's say, for money, um, or its equivalent is simony forbidden by ecclesiastical law. Okay, the difference between divine or, or natural law and then the ecclesiastical law. When simony is against the divine law, it is always a grave sin. Its gravity in other cases depends on the serious nature of what is bought or sold and on the, the degree of scandal given. So 
when you buy a religious article that simply came from the factory, say a statue, and it, it's not blessed, you're buying it for devotional purposes and to give the laborer his wage and having made it through the company that he works for, who then sells it to the company who sells it commercially, that you're not doing it for impure motives. You're, you're, you know, the New Testament says, give the laborer his wage. Same with celebrating a mass for a, a mass stipend, which in most dioceses, a mass stipend is five to ten dollars. Okay, uh, it might vary uh, higher than ten dollars according to the geographical location and the higher level of income, but I have never seen a mass stipend, myself personally, uh, for a diocesan set level be over $15, and that's even in the in the larger, more wealthy cities. So, and, and the most common that I've seen is $10. But that's not, that's not saying that I'm going to celebrate this mass only for money. That's saying I'm going to celebrate this mass because there's electricity to pay for the church. There's there's the linens. There's the wine and the bread that we have to buy from the church supplier to confect the Eucharist at the sacred liturgy. You know, it, it, it takes money to, to do these holy, spiritual, and good things. So don't confuse Simony with that. It's EWTN's Open Line Tuesday with Father Wade Menezes. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Pick up the phone and give us a call. 833-288-3986. That's the number Tom used in the great state of Illinois. Listening on WSFI Radio. Tom, you're on with Father Wade. Hi, Father Wade. Hello, Tom. Thank you for your call today. Father, I had a question. We were talking a little bit about heresy earlier. I was wondering how Martin Luther arrived at, at the uh, non-sacredness of the, of the Eucharist. Well, you know, you'd have to ask a Lutheran scholar about that, but, you know, there were two doctrines that Luther did not want to particularly um, do anything with when he decided to break away from the Church, uh, and that is the, the, the Marian doctrines— and also uh, the doctrine of the Eucharist. Um, and so he, he didn't have a problem with those two doctrines. It's successive followers of his, uh, successive factions of his, that broke away from the traditional teachings of the Church in those areas, right? And so the, the, the Lutherans today, for the most part, believe in a, in a type of consubstantiation, uh, con meaning uh, with, uh, together with. So the Eucharist, uh, when, when celebrated in a Lutheran church, is both bread and wine and the body and blood of Christ, where we Catholics believe in a transubstantiation. That means a change of substance completely, uh, transubstantia, uh, a change of substance completely from bread and wine, and from the words of consecration onwards, no longer ordinary bread and wine, but truly, really, and substantially the body, blood, soul, and divinity of our Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, that's what we believe in transubstantiation. Uh, we do not believe in consubstantiation. That would be a heresy if one uh, reputed the doctrine of transubstantiation and, and believed in consubstantiation. But the majority of Protestant faiths or Protestant sects, uh, and, and some experts say there's as many as 33,000 today, if you count every single autonomous, you know, 
church house building, for example, in the South, where there's many that that's an, an autonomous congregation only to itself, whether it comes from the Calvinist line, the Zwingli line, whether it can trace itself back, excuse me, to the Calvinist line, the Zwingli line, or the Anabaptist line, it doesn't matter. If you count every single autonomous congregation that's subject to no other congregation as a unified body, for example, the Southern Baptist Convention, if you count every single one, there's some 33 different, 33,000 different Protestant uh, bodies or, or sects. So the majority of those don't even believe in a consubstantiation, which would already be a heresy in and of itself. Um, so, you know, we believe very uniquely, as, as do the Eastern Rite Catholic churches um, who are in union with Rome, as do the Orthodox who are separated from Rome from the 1054 split, which was not a split of doctrine, but a split of, of, of over jurisdiction. Uh, we, uh, we, we believe in transubstantiation, the, the, Rome, the, the Latin Rite Roman Catholic Church, the 23 Eastern Rites in union with Rome, and, and the Orthodox, who again split not because of doctrine, but over jurisdiction for the most part. So I want to refer you, Tom, to uh, some beautiful paragraphs in the Catechism, and anybody else who's listening, to understand exactly what we believe uh, in transubstantiation. I'll, I'll take a little bit of time now to do that. I think it's important, especially as we arrive at uh, Holy Thursday in just a, a few days, consider this the an, uh, uh, an extension of the springboard I gave on the effects of the Eucharist at the beginning of, of the show today, but Numbers 1375 through 1377 are crucial in believing and reading and believing what we believe as Catholics. Okay, number 1375 through 1377. Of, of the Universal Catechism of the Catholic Church, these three paragraphs. So number 1375, Tom, says this, It is by the conversion of the bread and wine into Christ's body and blood that Christ becomes present in this sacrament. The Church Fathers strongly affirm the faith of the Church in the efficacy of the Word of Christ and of the action of the Holy Spirit to bring about this conversion. This is why St. John Chrysostom declares, quote, it is not man that causes the things offered to become the body and blood of Christ, but he who was crucified for us, Christ himself. The priest and the role of Christ there at the altar pronounces these words, but their power and grace are God's. This is my body, the priest says, and this word trans transforms the things offered because the priest acts in persona Christi, in the person of Christ, in the celebration of the sac sacraments. So when the priest says, this is my body, when he says in confession, I absolve you, he doesn't mean the priest, Father Wade, if it's Father Wade speaking those words, it's, it's Father Wade speaking in persona Christi, in the person of Christ, or in persona capitis, in the person of Christ, the head. Okay, again, St. John Chrysostom, it is not man that causes the things offered to become the body and blood of Christ, but he who was crucified for us, Christ himself. The priest in the role of Christ, right there in number 1375, the priest in the role of Christ pronounces these words, but their power and grace are God's. This is my body, the priest says, and this word transforms the very things offered. And St. Ambrose says this about the conversion, also quoted in number 1375 of the Catechism. St. Ambrose says, quote, Be convinced that this is not what nature has formed, but what the blessing has consecrated. The power of the blessing prevails over that of nature, because by the blessing, nature itself is changed, meaning the nature of bread and wine 
into the very nature of the body and blood of Christ. And now Ambrose says this, which is extremely brilliant. Could not Christ's word, which can make from nothing what did not exist before, change already existing things into what they were not before? It is no less a feat to give things their original nature than to change their existing natures. In other words, Tom, this is brilliant. Listen to this, Tom. Christians believe that God created ex nihilo, Latin for from nothing. God created from nothing. Everything that's, that we know about the six-day creation is told to us in Scripture. Now, if, if God can create from nothing things that did not exist at all before in a nature— can't he take an already existing nature and change it into that which it was not before? Of course he can. So from the words of consecration onwards, no longer ordinary bread and wine, but truly, really, and substantially the body, blood, soul, and divinity of our Lord Jesus Christ. Number 1376 says this, The Council of Trent summarizes the Catholic faith by declaring... Because Christ our Redeemer said that it was truly his body that he was offering under the species of bread, it has always been the conviction of the Church of God. And this Holy Council, again quoting the Council of Trent, and this Holy Council now declares again that by the consecration of the bread and wine, there takes place a change of the whole substance of the bread into the substance of the body of Christ our Lord, and of the whole substance of the wine into the substance of his blood. This change, the Holy Catholic Church has fittingly and properly called transubstantiation. And if you break down the Latin again, Tom, it's transubstantia, a change of substance. Meaning what? Well, a change of substance of the very nature of bread and wine into the very substance of the body and blood of Christ, his body, blood, and soul, and divinity. And lastly, Tom, number 1377 says this, the Eucharistic presence of Christ begins at the moment of the consecration and endures as long as the Eucharistic species subsist. Christ is present whole and entire in each of the species and whole and entire in each of their individual parts in such a way that the breaking of the bread does not divide Christ. Again, the Eucharistic presence of Christ, number 1377 of the Universal Catechism, the Eucharistic presence of Christ begins at the moment of the consecration and endures as long as the Eucharistic species subsists. Christ is present whole and entire in each of the species and whole and entire in each of their parts in such a way that the breaking of the bread does not divide Christ. So there you are, uh, a nice summation, Tom, uh, and, and a great question um, regarding uh, Martin Luther and what he believed. He didn't want to break away at first from the doctrine of transubstantiation, huh? It's subs subs successive followers of his who did. But Numbers 1375, Numbers 1376, and Number 1377, all three of those give a nice summation of uh, our one holy Catholic and apostolic faith on the doctrine of the Eucharist. And might I add, uh, there's a wonderful encyclical by now Pope St. Paul VI. Uh, it's titled Mysterium Fidei, Mystery of Faith. It's a short encyclical. It's strictly on the doctrine of the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. And you know what he does the majority on the pages of that encyclical, Tom? Is he quotes ancient church fathers 
on the doctrine of the Eucharist. Uh, Ambrose, Augustine, Irenaeus, um, John Chrysostom, and the like, Cyril of Jerusalem, Cyril of Alexandria, and the like, on the doctrine of the real presence. It's church father after church father after church father after church father on this wonderful doctrine of the Eucharist. And uh, it's worth reading. Maybe, maybe begin it on Holy Thursday night and read it into the Easter season. Maybe try to finish it up by Divine Mercy Sunday, the eighth day after Easter. There was, there's a beautiful, because uh, it's not a long encyclical, there's a beautiful reading assignment for those who can take it on. Um, begin on Holy Thursday night, wherein we celebrate the uh, institution of the Holy Eucharist on the night of the arrest. Uh, and then read uh, Mysterium Fidei, Mystery of Faith, uh, all the way through Divine Mercy Sunday. You can download it as a PDF document from the Vatican website, vatican.va, vatican.va. And mind you, uh, Mysterium Fidei, Mystery of Faith in Latin, the name of that encyclical, it came out in 1965, I believe, the year I was born, uh, right at the close of the Second Vatican Council, the same year that the, the Vatican Council closed. Remember, Pope John XXIII initiated the Council in 62, but he died during it. Pope Paul VI uh, closed the Council in 1965. Um, Mysterium Fidei are the words said when at every Mass we attend, right after the second consecration of the wine into the precious blood of Christ, right after he places the chalice of the precious blood back on the altar after that second consecration of that second species, he says, the mystery of faith to the congregation. And then the congregation responds, one of the three responses that are available, uh, either led by the cantor or begun by the priest himself if it's recited, but there's three options there, right? So, uh, the mystery of faith, mysterium fidei, and if it's if if that ordinary form of the mass is chanted in the Latin, because it, it can be, and in, in special high solemnities it should be, it's a very beautiful chant. Uh, mysterium fidei, you know, the mystery of faith, and then the people respond and chant one of those three uh, responses. So uh, there you have it, uh, a, a, a nice encyclical. A beautiful encyclical that sums up what we believe about the doctrine of transubstantiation. Tom, just out of curiosity, you seem to have a strong um, devotion to the Eucharist yourself by your very question. I'm curious if your parish has a Eucharistic adoration chapel. Um, <clears throat> we actually don't have a standing Eucharistic uh, chapel, but I'm okay. near uh, Marytown, uh, which is a, uh, the uh, home of the... Uh, Franciscans, and they have a, a standing 24-hour uh, adoration chapel. Very right. It's also right. the uh, shrine of uh, Maximilian Kolbe for the United States. Yeah, beautiful. Wonderful. Well, great. Uh, well, we, we really appreciate your call today, and uh, we, we appreciate it very much. And it's such a timely question you ask, um, especially... Um, as we approach Holy Thursday. By the way, uh, the, the three responses that are available in the, in the English, right after the, the priest says Mysterium Fidei, or the Mystery of Faith, right after the consecration of the Precious Blood, uh, the three options are this. Option A, we proclaim your death, O Lord, and profess your resurrection until you come again. Uh, the second one, option B in the Roman Missal, is when we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim your death, O Lord, until you come again. 
And option C, the third and final one, is save us, Savior of the world, for by your cross and resurrection you have set us free. All three of those are very eschatological in their nature. They're praising uh, Jesus Christ in his paschal mystery, his passion, death, resurrection, and ascension into heaven. It's calling to mind that we are called to be saved and enter heaven for all eternity, uh, etc. So there, there are three beautiful uh, options there. And uh, sometimes I like to pray all three side by side just as a private prayer when I'm in the presence of the Blessed Sacrament. Just as a private prayer, I'll, I'll pray them in succession, uh, sitting there in front of the Eucharist, either exposed in the monstrance or not exposed. So there's a thought, too, that one might want to do. But I want to really encourage our, our listeners who can, uh, according to their time element of, of their faithfulness to daily duty, if you can take on for your spiritual reading, Mysterium Fidei, the encyclical on the Eucharist from Pope St. Paul VI, issued universally in 1965, try to do that. Again, you can get it at Vatican.va. Thank you, uh, Tom, for a great question. 833-288-EWTN. That's our toll-free number. We've got wide open phone lines for you at 833-288-3986. Some special programming we have for you this Holy Week. Uh, tonight, the Holy Retreat, uh, Holy Week Retreat with Father Pablo Straub. And tonight, Father Pablo speaks of grievous or mortal sin and the effects upon eternal life for each person. That's tonight at 10 Eastern Time on EWTN Radio. On Good Friday, join us for the celebration of our Lord's Passion with Pope Francis, live from Rome. On Good Friday, His Holiness Pope Francis presides over the solemn celebration of the Lord's Passion, live from Vatican City. That's Friday morning at 11 a.m. Eastern Time on EWTN Radio. And join uh, on Friday also, join Spiritual Master Father Benedict Groeschel for Holy Friday Meditations that prepares us for Christ's Passover. That's Friday at 1 p.m. and 6 p.m. Eastern Time, right here on EWTN Radio. For EWTN Radio's complete coverage of the week that changed the world, visit EWTNRadio.net and click on Schedule. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. Matt's watching us on YouTube. And he said, I'm studying Acts and have come across chapter 8, verses 14 through 17, which seems to suggest the necessity of confirmation. What does confirmation add or achieve that baptism does not? Oh, what a great question, uh, especially as the catechumens uh, are getting ready to uh, enter the church, um, either fully with baptism, confirmation, and Eucharist, um, the, uh, the, the, the three full sacraments of initiation, or if there are Protestant entering the Church at the Easter Vigil, whose prior baptism in the Protestant Church has been deemed valid by their Catholic pastor, then they won't be baptized at the Easter Vigil, but they will receive confirmation in Eucharist, the other two sacraments of initiation, because their baptism has been deemed valid in the Protestant Church after, after having it researched. So what a great question, and a very timely question. You know, John Cardinal Wright uh, once wrote an article, and I love this article, I've, I've used Used it in in uh, in times when I've helped teach catechism uh, to to eighth graders or, or freshmen in high school a couple times, especially when I was still a seminarian. But I've kept this wonderful article on file by John Cardinal Wright. Uh, some reflection on confirmation. It, it conveys to its readers in a very clear and succinct manner the Church's basic teachings uh, on the sacrament of confirmation, and in doing so. Uh, it responds to common misgivings about the sacrament and provides an informative and, and we could even say a pastoral treatment 
of the sacrament of confirmation and its most basic tenets. Uh, Cardinal Wright uh, begins by saying that the sacrament of confirmation is the Cinderella of the sacraments, neglected often and little misunderstood. And it's, it's this very thing that he wishes to dispel. He identifies confirmation as the sacrament of Christian vitality. Amen to that. I love that phrase. Christian vitality and discusses its effects, that is, its indelible character. Uh, it imprints on the soul never to be erased, like baptism and holy orders also do. Three of the seven sacraments impart an indelible character never to be erased uh, on the soul. But can't, confirmation imprints this indelible character on the, on the soul, and it, it, it's serving as the one three sacraments of initiation, as I've already said, right? And, and it's eliciting of the seven gifts of the Holy Spirit received at baptism, right? Wisdom, understanding, knowledge, counsel, piety, fear of the Lord, and fortitude when your parents and God's parents spoke for you as a child. And now you, as a young adult or an adult receiving confirmation, can enact with your own efforts of vitality this sacrament of Christian vitality, right? So the need for the sacrament of confirmation is also discussed by the Church in her documents uh, as it relates, we could even say, uh, in a day and age when Christians are often faced with trials and tribulations presented them by a highly, highly secularized culture. Uh, if you'll remember, uh, 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 Michael, I, I don't know if Michael is, is Michael McCall a, a convert or a cradle Catholic. He's I know a you're a cradle convert, Catholic who fell away and then reverted back to his Catholic faith. Amen. So, so Michael probably remembers when he received confirmation. He's our our producer of the show. He, he probably remembers when confirmation was called uh, uh, the sacrament that made you a soldier of Christ. A sacrament made you a what of Christ? It made you a soldier of Christ. Why? Because you're a member of the church militant still living on earth, united with the church suffering in purgatory, and united as well with the church triumphant in heaven, this three-tiered hierarchy known as the doctrine of the communion of saints, right? So, so the sacrament of confirmation helps bring this vitality that reminds us we have trials and tribulations as young adults, as adults, as elder adults in a highly secularized culture. Um, and, and Cardinal Wright elaborates on this topic by especially focusing on the gift of fortitude or courage, which he identifies as, quote, perhaps the most characteristic gifts, gift that confirmation gives to the individual, which strengthens one to do God's will, especially in the face of difficulties and temptations. And in his article, he likens the sacrament of confirmation to a kind of, quote-unquote, a kind of ordination. The sacrament, he asserts, confers a type of lay ordination or, or reception of the Spirit precisely for one's part in the life of the Church. Well, your baptismal priesthood has already done that, I would add. And so confirmation can only strengthen that baptismal priesthood, something I alluded to earlier with the caller, which enables the priest to say at the words of offertory at the Mass, pray, brethren, that my sacrifice as an ordained minister and yours, laity, through your baptismal priesthood, because only a priest can offer sacrifice. Pray, brethren, that my sacrifice and yours can be accept will be acceptable to God, may be acceptable to God the Almighty Father. So this reality is found at the very core of any apostolate of the laity, and it's discovered in a very special way, in a very special teaching, that the sacrament of confirmation completes the sacrament of baptism. And that's why we say just that. Confirmation completes the sacrament of, of baptism. Look, if you're a cradle Catholic, your parents and godparents rightly spoke for you because they have the authority to do so. Your parents did, and then they asked your godparents to join them. 
your parents had legitimate, God-given authority over you as a baby, an infant. But now you have the ability to enact that vitality even stronger by being faithful on your own efforts with God's grace and, and, and merit through that grace. Huh? Cardinal Wright closes his article by discussing when one should receive the sacrament of confirmation, aware that the, the Roman Church, the Latin Rite, provides a certain amount of, of leeway to the Episcopal conferences in this regard. Uh, Cardinal Wright r- has reasonable and thought-provoking arguments for confirmations conferral during one's early or late adolescent years, and I'm glad to see this now happening more and more in the United States. So, uh, you know, I, I was, I, was, um, re- I received confirmation in, in eighth grade, uh, right around 1978. Well, back then, and still mostly now, we see confirmation given in the United States between eighth grade and tenth grade, sophomore in high school. But more and more bishops are starting to move it a little earlier, like fourth grade and fifth grade, because they believe the times are so challenging that the young person needs confirmation to practice that Christian vitality with the seven gifts and 12 fruits of the Holy Spirit on their own effort and merit working through God's grace by the time they enter middle school. So more and more bishops now are conferring the sacrament of confirmation uh, in fourth grade and fifth grade, and I'm glad to see that. And the majority of the 23 Eastern Rites, because it's a sacrament of, ish- of initiation along with baptism and confirmation, actually confer the sacrament in infancy at baptism. It's called chrismation. So they not only receive baptism and a little, a little fraxio, a little fraction of the Eucharist on their tongue um, at their baptism as an infant, but they also receive their confirmation, known as chrismation. Um, so, in, for example, in the Byzantine liturgy. But in the Latin rite, the, the Roman rite of the Church, the stronger tradition with great leeway given to Episcopal conferences across the globe has usually, in the United States, been between 8th grade and 10th grade, but uh, now bishops, rightly so in my personal opinion, my own personal conjecture for what that's worth, are now given it earlier precisely because the culture is so challenging that the young person needs it by the time they get into middle school. So 4th grade and 5th grade seems to be that time. So uh, there you go, um, and, and a, a great question, especially as we approach the great uh, mother vigil of all vigils, uh, the Easter vigil, where many, many catechumens will receive um, uh, baptism, confirmation, and Eucharist, uh, or at least uh, uh, confirmation and Eucharist if their prior Protestant baptism has been deemed valid. Thank you so much for a great question. And in the last couple seconds we have here, Rich is watching on YouTube, and he wants to know why you, as a consecrated celibate, wear a ring on your left ring finger. It's a personal uh, choice that I have as a vow ring, which some of the Fathers of Mercy do wear, and it's our personal choice. It's not part of our constitutions, but we can do that. And notice I have it on the married finger, the, the marriage finger, the second finger from the pinky on the left hand. So my marriage to my bride, the church, who is 2,000 plus years old. Would you leave us with a blessing? I certainly will, Jack. May the blessing of Almighty God, the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit descend upon all of our Open Line Tuesday listeners and remain with each and every one of you this day and always as we approach the sacred triduum and Easter, St. Joseph terror of demons. Pray for us on behalf of our host, Father Wade Menezes, our producer Michael McCall, call screener Matt Kubensky, and our social media maven, Mr. Jeff Burson. I'm Jack Williams, back at it tomorrow. Until then, God bless.